Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. If you have your Bible, you can open to 1 Samuel 17. If you need a Bible, just get the attention of one of the ushers as they are making their way to you. And I know we go from prayer to prayer to prayer, but that's why we go from glory to glory to glory. So let's just again, before we get into the word, ask God to bless our time hearing from him tonight. And so Lord, we, uh, we thank you, Father, that you're here. And as we turn our attention to your word, we're asking for your voice. We ask you, Father, that you would please speak to us tonight that you would come through the voice of a man, that you would uh, speak in your still small voice into our hearts. We ask, Lord, that this night would be a night of transformation, of resolution, a night of uh, illumination, of understanding, and a vision for ourselves, for our church, for our families, uh, for our future. So we just pray that you would do what you will with this text in our hearts, Lord. I know that your word is living, but when you breathe on it, it really lives. So Father, would you please give us your spirit to hear you tonight we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So uh, like probably most of you in here, I was brought up on fairy tales and fables. You know, um, Rumpelstiltskin, you know, Beauty and the Beast, the Disney classic, Cinderella, and all the rest. And, you know, the, those stories are so endearing to us, and they always involve a long shot who becomes a hero, and there's some uh, prized princess or prince or great wealth or treasure or honor involved, you know, and those stories just, they reach us, they penetrate, and, and, and I think we all kind of relate because I think we all from time to time, especially in our youth, we feel like a long shot. We know we're not the fastest, the most athletic, we're not the most gifted, uh, we certainly uh, don't have a lot of privilege, you know, most of us, and, and we feel like we're kind of fighting from behind and hoping that something's going to work out in the end, you know, and so uh, those things resonate with us. They relate with us. Well, as we come to 1 Samuel chapter 17, we come to one of the most endearing and beloved passages in the Bible because uh, it's a very famous story. Even people that don't know much about the Bible, they know the story of David and Goliath. And most people probably uh, think that it's just another one of Grimm's stories or Asaph's uh, uh, creations, not really realizing that it's actually here in the Bible for us. Uh, the story of David and Goliath is one of the greats of all time. It's got a distressed kingdom. There's a conflict between good and evil. There's a bully. There's an underdog that overcomes insurmountable odds. There's the birth of a hero. There's triumph over evil. There's even a king's daughter and great riches involved. It has all of the ingredients of just a classic great story. And really, it reads more like a screenplay than it does a Bible lesson as you work your way through it, and we love it. Here's the difference. It's not a fairy tale. It's not a fable. It's not the creation of man. It actually happened. And that is the reason why we love this story so much. And even more than, than this passage giving us a testimony to the power of God and the power of faith, what it really gives to us above all of that is a foreshadowing of the most heroic and far-reaching rescue love story to ever touch humanity, and we'll discover that as we get into it. So let's just begin. We got a lot of verses to get through and not a lot of time to do it. And so let's begin looking at the chapter, chapter 17, verse 1. It says this, now the Philistines gathered together their armies to battle and were gathered together at Shucko, which belongs to Judah, and they pitched between Shucko and Azekah in Ephes Damim. So we see the Philistine army in a territory that belongs to the people of God, and the battle lines are being drawn. And it says in verse 2 that Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together and pitched by the valley of Elah and set the battle in array against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on a mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side, and there was a valley in between them. Okay, so we see that the battle lines are drawn, the people of God are on one side, 
the enemy, the Philistines, is on the other side, and they're separated by a valley, and you get the idea that there is some sort of a stalemate. The tension is building between these two armies, and you know that a conflict is pending. Now, we've already seen the Philistines in our study of 1 Samuel, and we understand that the Philistines were the long-standing enemy of the people of God at this point in their history. The Philistines were a foreign people living in the land that belonged to the people of God. They were occupying some of their best lands. The cities of the Philistines were on the Mediterranean coast, so they had taken the prime real estate. They were suppressing the advancement of the people of God in their personal lives and also in their collective mission as a nation. They were being suppressed. The presence of the Philistines was keeping them stagnant in pursuing their cause. They were also a corrupting moral force. We know that Samson, who probably would have been Samuel, had his story worked out. We know that Samson was corrupted and ultimately upended by the influence of the Philistines in the land. And we know from past passages that they were serving Dagon, false idols. There was all kinds of uh, corruption that was introduced into the land of the people of God because of them. And above all of that, what we're going to see here is that they were in defiance to the God of the people whose land they were occupying. So they did not honor the God that had pulled his people into that land, probably the worst thing of all. And so what we have from a zoomed out perspective is that we have Israel as one nation under God that's being kept from their God by something that doesn't even belong in their land. Now, what we know is that Israel has options. They outnumber the Philistines, and thereby they overpower the Philistines. However, they're disorganized, so they're stronger, and yet they are in chaos. We know that they're more in number, but they're not well-armed. And we know that they have God on their side, yet they lack the collective faith because of their conditions to do something about what was going on in their midst. We know that they were willing and that they were trying because they're in a place right now where they're set and ready to do battle. We know that they've already been in conflict with the Philistines. So it isn't that they're unwilling to do something about it. They just know inside there's a weak link in the chain, but they can't get to it. And the reason they can't get to it is because there's a strong link in the chain. And until they can get past the strong link in the chain, they can't do anything to get to the weak link in the chain. So what is the strong link in the chain? Notice in verse 4, after we read that the battle is set in array, here's what was going on. It says that there went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. So he was somewhere between nine and 10 feet tall. So that's a little higher. Uh, the ceiling over my head right here is nine feet. So this man was mammoth in his size. And it says that he had a helmet of brass upon his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of brass. I don't even know what that is. I just know I can't squat that. And he had greaves of brass upon his legs and a target of brass between his shoulders. That means a chest plate, chest shield. And the staff of the spear was like a weaver's beam and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron and one bearing a shield went before him. He had his own shieldsman, not an armor bearer, but just a shield bearer. And he stood and cried unto the armies of Israel and he said unto them, why are you come out to set your battle in array? Am not I a Philistine and you servants to Saul? Choose you a man for you and let him come down to me. And if he be able to fight with me and to kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then shall you be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. 
Give me a man that we may fight together. He called him Yella, basically. You remember that from the old movies? You know, you're Yella. That's basically what he said. I defy the armies, and I call that you bring out a man to fight me. Well, the response in verse 11, it says that when Saul and all Israel heard those words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So they fretted, they were anxious, they were fearful. They did not know what to do in the middle of this whole thing. We have the giant who is the champion of the Philistines. And so here's what we have here. We have the battle in array, the Philistines and the Israelites facing off with one another. And the strong link in the Philistines' weak chain is this man, Goliath. There's a force within the Philistine entity that makes the Philistines untouchable. Now, the giants that we read about in the Bible in the Old Testament, the most we can make of their origin and where they came from is a passage that's in Genesis chapter 6. And it tells us there that there was a time when the sons of God, being the angelic entities, somehow intermingled their seed with the daughters of men, that is, female humans, and that the offspring of that interaction, and again, I don't understand this fully, and no, no one who claims to really does, were that there were giants that were then in the land. And it says that there were giants in those days and also after those days, meaning that they existed even after Noah's flood, which primarily was intended to drown out the influence of these giants. And so there were giants in the world in the days after the flood. They were the result of the kingdom of darkness, Satan's kingdom, interjecting its seed into the human race. And the result was these giants that were an influence for evil, and they were very big, and they were very strong. Now, when the children of Israel came into the land of Israel that they are now possessing, they were chartered, mandated by God to destroy the giants and to eliminate them completely. They eliminated them partially, but not completely. Thus, Goliath and his brothers and some others are still in existence. And I say that to say this, is that Goliath's presence in Israel was partially Israel's fault. They had allowed that influence to continue, even though God had already said, get it out. But they had left it there, okay? So there was a demonic presence in the land that was somewhat the fault of Israel that had now become too big to fight, too well armed to assault, and it was protected in the front by a shield and behind by an army. Do you get the idea of what's going on here? Now, in the church of Jesus Christ in 2020, today as we sit here, we believe and we still think that the United States is one nation under God. And it is, in a sense. We believe our Constitution gives to us, it guarantees to us, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We share those values with God. Okay, those are from him, and we have taken those as the identity of our national person. Okay, now, in spite of that, or in light of that, there is in our midst an evil influence that has invaded and has been here. And that evil has increasingly suppressed and replaced God's place with suppressive, restrictive, and corruptive forces. And we all understand that. We're feeling that. We see that, okay? So I say that to say this, is that we stand, us here today, in a place very much like Saul and the Israeli army did in 1 Samuel chapter 17, the first three verses. We are in array. There is a battle right now between the forces of righteousness and the forces of evil for the souls of humanity and for the soul of our nation. We can relate to what's going on in the text right here. Now, let me pause and say this. I am not talking about red and blue. I'm not talking about political parties because God is not a part of any political party. I shared at the opening of the service about when Joshua came into the presence of Jesus Christ who declared himself to be the captain of the Lord's army. 
And Joshua asked Jesus a question. He said, whose side are you on, ours or our enemies? And do you know what the answer was? No. That's what Jesus declared. And it, and it was like, wait a minute. He asked a second time, are you, are you, wait, what? No, no. Why? Because God does not join man's teams. We join God's team. Okay, so the battle between good and evil is a battle between God and the kingdom of darkness. And it is reflected, we are the shadow of what is going on in the invisible realm. But it is very real and we feel it very much. Okay, now, the forces of righteousness in our world today are stronger than the forces of darkness. However, they are disorganized, they are disheveled, and by and large, they are unbelieving. The forces of evil that are in our nation today, they are inferior and more vulnerable and they are weaker than they appear, but they have a giant. They have a strong link in a weak chain that must fall if that chain is to be broken. Now, the giant that exists in the world today is not a man who's over nine feet tall, but rather he's an unnamed, unseen system, okay, that controls the media, the money, the education, the laws and policy, not just of our nation, but of our world, the supply chains, okay? And that giant is the result of the devil getting into our system and the people of the system allowing it to happen over long periods of time and allowing that entity to grow and become stronger and stronger and stronger. And like Goliath, the giant we face in our world today is well-armed, well-protected, very arrogant, and is in defiance to the true and living God of the Bible. But here's the fact concerning that giant. He is not immortal. He is not unstoppable. He is not undefeatable. And he is not well, he is undefeated, but he's not undefeatable. But his presence makes people afraid and dismayed. Now enter the hero in verse 12. It says this. It says, now David was the son of that Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse. And he had eight sons and the man went among men for an old man. He was an ancient in the days of Saul. And the three eldest sons of Jesse went and followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons that went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. And David was the youngest, and the three eldest followed Saul. But David went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. And so enter David now into the story. Now, if you don't like spoilers in great stories, then plug your ears, okay? <laughs> but you probably already know this one, is that David is the hero in the story that will take Goliath down. And we know that eventually David will take his place as Israel's rightful king, and in this, his first presentation, he's not king yet, <laughs> but he will be uh, a little bit later on. Here's what you need to understand, okay? Is that David is first and foremost in the scripture, a shadow or a foreshadowing, or we use the word type when we study the Bible. He is a picture of Jesus Christ who is yet to come. Now, when you read in the New Testament and throughout the rest of the Bible, what you see concerning Jesus is that he is often called the son of David. He is the rightful one who will take the place of the throne of David, his father. David is called a man after God's own heart, which is exactly what Jesus himself is, okay? We see right here in the text that he is the son of the ancient of days and that he is sent by his father into the battle. All of these are clues to rehearse the picture that God is painting concerning the solution to the problem. David is a picture or a type of Jesus Christ. All right, now here's the second spoiler, and I need to tell you this in setting up where we're going next in the text, is that when David ultimately goes into battle against Goliath, he will take with him five smooth stones that he picks up from the brook edge. All right, now there are people that have tried to kind of philosophize and 
you know, conjecturize about why David took five stones with him. And someone brought up, well, Goliath had four brothers, and that is true. But I doubt David knew that in the moment when he was about to go into battle against this one man that was there. I think on a practical level, he just wanted more than one shot, (laughs) right? I would want more than one shot. I probably wouldn't just take one. He took five. However, God was careful to record the fact that he took five. He only needed one, but he took five and God records it down. And so, yes, I know that I I don't know this for a fact, what I'm about to say right now, because the Bible doesn't say this for a fact. But here's, here's what I do see when I look through this text, is that there is more than one giant in this story. Goliath is giant number five, but there are four that fall before Goliath does, and there are four that must fall before Goliath falls. And if one of those does not fall, David never goes into battle. It's amazing to me when you read the end of the story how anticlimactic it actually is. I mean, you read the battle and and that would not make it in Hollywood. Okay, You, you build up the whole plot and now finally the battle comes. He slings one stone and the guy's dead. You'd be like, no, 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 no. He has to like reach up and grab David's neck when he's standing over. Something epic has to happen, but it doesn't. One stone, he falls, David cuts his head off, it's over. And you're like, come on, you could have built that, you could have drawn that. No, 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 you got to understand that if you kill the first four giants, the fifth one falls real easy. So what are the four or five giants, and you can write these things down, there'll be slides up on the screen so you can see them. What are the five giants that David had to slay in order to see Goliath fall down? I gave them all names, some of them are corny, some of them are cool, but they will help you remember. What are they? The first one we see in the next section of verses, it is the giant called Status Giganticus. Okay, status, that is, uh, that's Latin for the status quo. Is there a slide for that? Thank you. You can write it down if you want to, but that is the first giant that had to fall in order for David to defeat Goliath. Let's look at it, verse uh, 16. It says that the Philistine drew near morning and evening and presented himself for 40 days. And Jesse, the son, uh, said unto David, his son, Take now for your brethren an ephah of this parched corn and these 10 loaves and run to the camp of your brothers and carry these 10 cheeses unto the captain of their thousand and look now how thy brethren fare and take their pledge. So Jesse, David's father, sends him to go see how his brothers are doing. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose up early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the trench as the host was going forth to fight and shouted for the battle. For Israel and the Philistines had put the battle in array, army against army. And David left his carriage in the hand of the keeper of the carriage and ran into the army and came and saluted his brothers. And as he talked with them, behold, there came up the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, out of the armies of the Philistines and spake concerning or according to the same words, and David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were sore afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man that has come up? Surely to defy Israel is he come up, and it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel, meaning that they will be tax-free. They won't have to pay any taxes to the government. Okay, this is a critical moment for David in the story, and it is the first giant that he has to face. And here's what it is. It's the giant of the status quo. Everyone in Israel, or at least in this battle, knew what the problem was. They had all heard Goliath taunting and shouting day by day by day by day, 
and they were afraid and dismayed. And so the pattern of the collective body of God's people was to hide themselves and to cower from the threats of this giant that was in front of them. And there is this dangerous thing that lies within the hearts of humanity is that we are quick to fall in line with what everyone else is doing. We see the way people react and respond to things. We interpret what's going on according to how we see other people responding. And we are quick to do as we see. We mirror behavior that we observe. That is just a given. It's human nature. It's what we do. There is a natural tendency in us that we judge that the people that are more powerful than us, more knowledgeable, more informed, that we're going to do as they do. And so what we see, we mirror it, okay? And this is just what we do. This is life, all right? I know that, that you know, as parents, you know, we do this. We look what other parents are doing. We do this as people. I, I mean, and it's funny, it's stupid that we do it, really, because remember the moment that you realized that your parents didn't know what they were doing? <laughs> right? right? Like, you guys, I looked up to you. Like, I trusted you. I, I put my whole life in your hands, and you had no clue, you know? And, and then we have kids, and we're like, well, how are they doing it? And we look at what's going on, and we think, well, I'll just do it the way they do it. Nobody's got a clue. But we are subject to fall in line with the status quo. It's just what happens, okay? Now, David is in a very precarious place right here because he is threatened by the status quo to do as he sees everyone else do, okay? Now, Jesus, who is, who, of whom David is a picture or a type, he fell into that same potential thing. He came into a system where there was an enemy, there was darkness, his enemy was sin, the threat was all of humanity dying, and there was a system that he came into. When Jesus came into the world, there was a rabbinic system, there was a religious order, and Jesus was a part of that order. He came into it, sent of the Father. And he was subject to that system. He grew up in it, going to synagogue as a, as a kid and then following after a rabbi to some sort of degree. But at some point, Jesus himself had to realize that my mission is not to mirror what everyone else is doing. God has called me to do something that's specific and unique to me. And if I'm gonna fulfill what God has called me to do, then I can't look at everyone else to find out what I'm supposed to be doing. I need to look to God. And that's what David did. And the way that he defeated status giganticus is that he got his eyes off of the immediate small picture and he assessed the size of the whole situation. Watch this. It says that David, verse 26, spoke to the men that stood by him saying, what shall be done to the man that kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Do you see the difference between David's perspective and the perspective of the men that were there? For them, it was all about honor. It was about riches. It was about the king's daughter and the status that that meant. It was about not having to pay taxes. It was all about the advantages of the earthly honor that would come with slaying Goliath. But that's not what David saw. David saw a kingdom, and David saw a God, and David saw a call, and David saw his glory. And David said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine, and who does he think he is that he can come in here and dishonor God and dishonor his armies, and we're just going to stand by and watch this happen? See, David could not fall in line with the status quo because his vision was broader. He saw the big picture. He didn't look at it in the finite moment of what it was, but he saw it in the big spectrum of what it meant. He is hindering the purpose and call of God's people. He is bringing a reproach to the name of the great I am who dispossessed the armies of the Canaanites and brought his people into this place and put down the walls of Jericho and has now called us into this commission of defending what he's given to us. And who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he thinks he can defy the armies of the living God and that we're just going to sit by and watch it happen? He defeated the giant by seeing the big picture. 
And the people answered him after this manner, saying, So shall it be done to the man that kills him. Oh, my. David defeated the status quo. Jesus did it the same way. Jesus wasn't concerned with the honor, with the crowds, with the attention that he was getting for the miracles that he was doing. They tried to put a crown upon his head, but he withdrew secretly from the place because he wasn't being driven by the honor of an earthly kingdom. He came for the sake of God's will and the freedom of men. Jesus defeated the status quo by seeing the bigger picture of what it's really all about. The system in his day was concerned with man glory, but Jesus was concerned with God's glory. Before you can get to Goliath, you've got to conquer the status quo. You cannot fall in line with what everyone else is doing and think that giants are going to fall around you. The second giant that David had to fight, that Jesus also fought, It's in verses 28 through 30, and his name is the Alley Giant. You can see there's a slide, I hope. I can't see what you see on the side screens, but I hope it turns red. The Alley Giant. And if you put that together, it's the Allegiant, okay? And here's what it is, is that the people that were supposed to be on David's team tried to keep him back from doing what he was going to do. Sometimes there's a giant in our lives that is right next to us, right? Keeping us back. Watch what happens. Verse 28. It says that Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why did you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? Hey, little shepherd boy, you're just competent enough to watch over a couple of sheep if you can handle that much. Who did you leave those few sheep with in the wilderness? I know your pride and the naughtiness of your heart. For you are come down that you might see the battle. You just want to put this on your YouTube channel. And David said, what have I now done? Is there not a cause? And watch this. And he turned from him toward another and spoke after the same manner. And the people answered him again after the former manner. Now, it is not hard to see and understand why David's brothers are treating him this way and cutting him down, okay? They are older. They are bigger. They are official. They have badges. But they're afraid. And David's not. And how does it make them look if their kid brother is willing to go into the battle but they themselves are hiding like babies behind the berm. They didn't want David to go because of how it would make them look. And so they try to hold David back and pull him into the cowering fear that they have succumbed to. Do you realize that it was the same exact thing that happened to Jesus? Is there anybody here that's about 30 years old? You're 29, 31? Show your hand. If you're, you know, 28, 29, 30, 31, 32, you're lying. Okay. Any, anybody? You know, in that, right in that. Okay, stand up. If you, I, I hate to put you on the spot, but just stand up for just a second. If you're right in that thing. Okay, I'll span it. 27 to 33. Just get it, get, you get the visual, okay? Look around. Look around. Okay, do you want to call them boss? <laughs> do you want, do you want, you can sit down. Do you want to call them Lord? You know, I'm not much further along, you know, but, but, but you see what's going on. Jesus comes into the system and here's these like ancients with these big hats and the robes and the chains and the urim and the chest and the breastplate. And, you know, these guys are decorated and you got Nicodemus, the teacher of the teachers and, you know, the Sanhedrin and these guys that have labored. And here comes Jesus on the scene. And Jesus walks in and he sees the problem of humanity and the plight of sin and all that it is. And he starts showing the grace of God. And he starts showing love, acceptance, and forgiveness. And he starts extending love to people that don't deserve it. And and crowds of people gather around. And God honors his service with miracles. And he's walking on water. And the dead are being raised. And lepers are being cleansed. And what happened? Did the people on the same team as Jesus get behind him and say, man, we should fall in line and follow this guy? No, they said, we got to kill him. Because if we don't kill him, then we're going to lose our position and the whole nation's going to follow after this guy. Yeah, (laughs) that's exactly what's supposed to happen. Here's David. He's got a fire in his heart. He's ready to go. He sees this guy. And he's like, he can't say that. He can't say that about our God. He can't say that about us. Don't you realize who we are? And these guys are like, would you just shut your mouth? Do you realize that they're censoring people for those comments? 
get in line, shut your mouth, and just let something else, someone get, oh, I'm going to do it tomorrow. You know, that's, that's the mentality. What did David do? He turned himself from them to another. And when you're facing the alley giant, when the people that are closest to you are discouraging you and trying to keep you back from conquering things that you need to conquer to get where God has called you to be, he doesn't want you to cut them off. He says, just turn away. I'm sorry, don't cut them down. Maybe you do have to cut them off, you know, but just turn away from them, okay? It's important that you do. Understand that there's a call and keep your eyes upon it. Before you can get to Goliath, you've got to conquer the alley giant. The third giant that David faced is in verse 31, and I named him Magnum Cum Laude, okay? I know some of them are corny, but I hope you'll remember, okay? When, when you graduate with honors, right, what do they say? They say it's Cum Laude. When you graduate with high honors, you're Magna Cum Laude, all right? Well, this giant that he has to overcome here is Magnum Cum Laude. Look at what happens next in verse 31. It says that when the words were heard, which David spoke, they rehearsed them before Saul and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, I love this, 30-year-old kid comes to the king. Let no man's heart fail because of him. Thy servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him for you are but a youth and he a man of war from his youth. And David said unto Saul, your servant kept his father's sheep. And there came a lion and a bear and took a lamb out of the flock. And I went out after him and smote him and delivered it out of his mouth. And when he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and I smote him and slew him. Your servant slew both the lion and the bear And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. David said, moreover, the Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear, he will deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. And so Saul said unto David, go and the Lord be with you. Saul essentially comes to David and he says, listen, you don't have the size, you don't have the clout. You don't have the training. You don't have the degrees and the education and the armor and the experience that it would take in order for someone as small as you to take down someone as big as him. Anybody in here ever struggle with their own sense of self-insufficiency? That you haven't done enough, learned enough, grown enough, trained enough, that you are not enough? in order to do the things that are in front of you or the things that need to be done in your life. David was the kind of person that never let league define him. I have told you guys this many times, and I'm going to say it again because it needs to be said again. If God has called you to do something, don't ask for permission to do it because you will never be given permission to do it. There will always be some roadblock or some reason why you can't yet. Oh, you can do that when you, if you, should you, but you will never be given the green light to go and do it, okay? Now listen, if you need to ask permission in order to do what God has called you to do, that happens. If you need a certain degree in order to practice a certain type of medicine, So be it. However, you better be prepared to defend against those that are going to tell you why you can't. Well, your grades aren't good enough. I'm sorry, we're not accepting that many this year. You better be ready for it because no one is going to give you permission. Think about this. What if David, King David, when when he was just the shepherd boy, what if the bear comes out of the woods, grabs the lamb by the neck? And David's like, oh, uh, um, okay, hold on. And he runs in the house. He's like, dad, dad, this bear, he just jumped out. He grabbed the lamb. Can I fight him? What's David's dad going to say? Yeah, son, don't interrupt me. I'm watching the game. You know, he's going to say, no, you can't fight him. Get in here. You know, if, 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 what if David's mom heard it? Like, oh, did he, did he hurt you? You scratched. Did you stub your toe on the way in? Can I make you some soup? You know, she's, you know, no, you can't go fight the bear. <laughs> you know, <laughs> no, you're not going to do that. Now, now listen, 
David didn't ask. He responded. He fought. He won. All right. Now, I'm certain that when he came in the house, I don't know if he had the scuffs that would accompany a fight with a bear. I don't know if he was carrying that with him when he came in the house, but he tells his parents what happened. If he's like my daughter, he told them a week later, <laughs> you know, that this, this whole thing happened. And they were like, wait, what? You did what? You, you did how? You know what David's answer would be? I just did it. I don't know how. I just did it. There was something inside of me that was pushing me and I just did it. And I guess I grabbed his beard, I punched him in the face, and by the grace of God, it worked. And beyond that, I can't tell you how I did it. Listen, if God is putting something in you, don't ask permission. Just do it, okay? Just go. Don't wait for someone to tell you or certify you. Just do it. God is with you. God has called you, all right? That's exactly what Jesus did. It was the same exact Thing. Now, Jesus overcomes this an entirely different way. Remember? Here's Jesus. He came to slay sin and death. And what did they say? They say, who are you? You're like the carpenter's kid. We know you. We know your brothers and your sisters. You're from Nazareth. You're the kid who picked his nose in the third grade and it got posted on social media. Everybody knows who you are. You can't be the savior. Like, you're going to save humanity? Like, who do you think you are, you know? And Jesus seemed so ordinary, and they thought him so incapable of, of being the Savior, of being the Messiah. And even to this day, people consider Jesus, and they look at him, and they say, how could a man from 2,000 years ago save humankind from sin and death and destruction and be the answer to all the problems in the world? It's inconceivable. That sounds like a fairy tale to me. That doesn't sound real. It doesn't sound right. Jesus doesn't do economics. Jesus doesn't do politics or media. Jesus doesn't do foreign relations and race. Listen, religion is religion. Politics is politics. Jesus is no match for George Soros. That's what people say. Why? Because Jesus doesn't measure up to the magnum cum laude that the world says you've got to be to be the savior. But Jesus knew who he was he said, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. I came to do the Father's will. I laid down my life for the cause of the joy that's set before me of seeing the salvation of mankind. And I'm going to save the world by standing in front of a worldly king and saying, my kingdom's not of this world. My servants are not going to fight. You're going to crucify me, but I'm going to rise from the dead and the whole world will be saved because of it. And they look at him and say, huh? You're going to do what? Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. I know who I am. I know what I've been called to do. Listen, before David could fight Goliath, before Jesus could effectively save humankind, the giant of magnum cum laude, the personal insufficiency, the fact that I am unqualified in the courts and in the eyes of men must fall before faith and that God has called me to do something, and therefore I will do it. God does not call the qualified. God qualifies the called. The fourth giant that David defeated before facing Goliath, we'll call him the monolithic method. Watch this, verse 38. Saul armed David with his armor, and he put a helmet of brass upon his head. Also, he armed him with a coat of mail. And David girded his sword, Saul's sword, upon his armor, and he essayed or attempted to go, for he had not proved it. And David said to Saul, I can't go with these, for I have not proved them. And David put them off from him, and he took his staff in his hand, and he chose him five smooth stones out of the brook. And he put them in a shepherd's bag, which he had even in a script. And a sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. Okay, here's Saul. He comes to David. He says, all right, you want to fight? You have faith. I can't deter you from what you want to do. At least do it our way. Put on this armor. Carry this sword. Put on this shield. 
And you go into the battle and you do the best. And here's David. He's like a kid, right? He's got Saul's sword. And Saul's like head and shoulders above everyone else, right? He's got like a size XL and David would have like a dagger. And so he's dragging this thing going like, you know, like he's ching, cha-ching, cha-ching, you know. And, and Saul thinks that David is going to be able to use Saul's method in order to accomplish God's call. And it doesn't work like that. Do you understand that the way in which God uses people is as unique an individual as your face print or your thumbprint? We are not the same. Saul wanted to say, David came through our university. David was trained in our army. David is one of us. He's one of my subjects faithfully. And David was respectful enough to say, I'll play along with that. I'll go along with that. But then once he put it on, he realized like, hey, listen, this isn't me. I can't do this. I don't operate this way. I remember when I first started teaching here in this church, it was almost 10 years ago. It might even be a little more than 10 years ago now. And one of the first books I taught was the book of Revelation. And I remember when I first started studying that, I remember Pastor Bobby came to me and, you know, he's so encouraging and, 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 you know, so helpful and everything. He's like, he's like, Nick, he's like, I'm going to give you my notes. You can read, you know, you can use them. He's like, I studied everyone. It's all outlined. It's all right there. You know, he gave me one of his sermons. You ever seen one of his sermons? It's like 60 pages and it looks like the rainbow Bible. Okay. It's all different colored markers. And he does, he does his homework and it's like, it's done. But he is the only human being on the face of the planet that can interpret what is in those lines. And he does it, and he does it well. But I looked at this, and I'm like, I can't use these. (laughs) That's not how I operate. It just won't work for me. That's just not who I am. must understand is that you are allowed to be who you are, okay? And you do not have to be a slave to someone else's methods of doing what God has called you to do. He has equipped you to do what he's called you to do, and it will look different, and that's okay. And that's exactly what we see even in the person of Jesus when we see him working in the world, okay? He did not do... How did, how did Jesus save the world? He went to the cross. He didn't fight. He didn't put on the armor. He didn't politicize and get elected. He went to the cross. It was a completely different method, okay? Before you can fight Goliath, before the giants come down, you've got to realize I'm, not, I'm rushing now because I'm out of time. I'm almost done, though. The fifth giant that fell in the text is Goliath. Goliath fell down. He was the strongest link in the chain of the Philistines' defense and of their army. And now that David has overcome all of the things that would keep him from even getting into that battle, now it's time to fight the main giant and who he would build. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day will the Lord deliver you into my hand and I will smite you and take your head from you. And I will give the carcass of the host of the Philistines this day unto the fowls of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And all this assembly shall know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands." And it came to pass that when the Philistine arose and came and drew nigh to meet David, that David hastened and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took thence a stone and slang it and smote the Philistine in his forehead that the stone sunk into his forehead and he fell upon his face to the earth. That's some force. I think God might've helped. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and smote the Philistine and slew him, but there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore, David ran and stood upon the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of the sheet thereof and slew him and cut off his head therewith. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. They had no strength left in them whatsoever. I love the fact that David killed Goliath with no weapon at all, but just with a sling and with a stone. 
You know, I think of Jesus again in this, and there, there's a passage in uh, Matthew 17 where Jesus was having, it's actually Matthew 16, he was having a discussion with um, his disciples, and they were up in the region of Caesarea Philippi, which is way up in the north of Israel. And I've actually been there. You know, I can't say that about a lot of places, but I was in this particular spot where Jesus had this conversation with his disciples. And right in that spot, there's this river. It's not deep. It's almost like a, like a brook, but it's crystal clear, cool water that runs through this very beautiful setting. And all along the border of this are these tiny little river rocks, the little smooth river stones that go right along it. And it was right in that setting that Jesus asked his disciples the question. He said, who do men say that I am? And they had this response. Well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're the prophet. Some say, no, no, no. And then he said, who do you say? And Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus looked at Peter and he said, you are right, Peter. And he said, upon this rock in that place where those stones were, he said, I will build my church. What is the rock that Jesus was talking about? It was the rock of Peter's statement that you are the Christ. That is the weapon that I will use. My death and resurrection is the method that I will use. Upon this rock, I will build my kingdom. And then he changed the name of Peter. He said, you are Simon, but you shall be. You are Petros or Peter or little stone. Jesus saves in the most non-conventional way. He doesn't use a sword and a crown. He used a nail and a cross. And in the process... He purchased a bunch of stones. The Bible says that we are living stones. And he uses us to take down giants that hinder the cause of his kingdom. Wow. David defeated Goliath. Jesus defeated the kingdoms of this world. As we come to a close, I've said this again before, and I'm going to say it again, is that there is no man... And there never will be any man that can solve the problems of the world that we're in right now. There's no political solution. There's no foreign policy. There's no strategy. There's not even an army or a battle or a militia or a cachet of weapons. There is nothing that can solve the problems that we face in the world that we are in right now. But I want you to watch what happens next as we close out the passage here. Because Saul asks the right question. Okay, Saul nails the solution. He didn't get much right, but he got this right. Watch this, verse 52. It says that the men of Israel and of Judah arose and they shouted and they pursued the Philistines until you come to the valley and to the gates of Ekron and the wounded of the Philistines fell down by the way of Shaharim, even to Gath and to Ekron. And the children of Israel returned from chasing after the Philistines and they spoiled their tents. I love this. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. That's like 20 miles, right? He's carrying this head. I wonder if he had like a big, like, you know, I don't know. Like a, he's carrying like a bowling ball, this bloodied neck dripping along the way, you know. And he brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. And when Saul saw David go forth against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the captain of his host, watch this, Abner, whose son is this? Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as thy soul liveth, O king, I cannot tell. And the king said, inquire thou whose son the stripling is. And as David returned from the slaughter of the Philistines, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said unto him, whose son Art thou, thou young man? And David answered, I am the son of thy servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Saul is asking the right question here. Whose son is this? Who is the father of this man that has solved the problem that no one else can solve? Listen, Jesus said this. He said, I have come to reveal the father. 
Jesus said in John chapter 14 to Philip, he said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus said, in my Father's house are many mansions. I am going to prepare a place for you. Jesus came to reveal his Father. Listen, if you want to know who's going to solve the problems of this world right now, I'm going to tell you who it is. It's Jesus Christ. He's the one that will take down the giant that will undo the vulnerability and reveal the vulnerability of all that this fallen, dark, twisted, corrupted, perverted world is. And the question that needs to be asked by those who can see what's going on and that understand is whose son is this? In other words, I need to know the God that has brought this solution into the world. Now, why does that matter? Why does Jesus matter in all of this to you and I? Here's why, okay? Because in verse 25, way back in verse 25, remember, they were having this discussion where the men were saying, the man who kills Goliath, and he gets this, he gets the king's daughter, he gets great riches, and what does he say? He says, his father's house is what? Free in Israel. His father's house is free in Israel. All right, listen. Jesus has slaughtered the kingdoms of this world, through his death and resurrection. He has defeated the kingdom of darkness. It's already done. And now he says, John chapter 1, verse 12, to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to be called the sons of God. Meaning that when you receive Christ, when you come to the Father through the Son, and you receive Christ as the Lord of your life, you become a part of his household and your household then becomes free in Israel. Do you understand? Whom the son sets free is free indeed. What does that mean? It means that as we take our eyes off men, as we take our eyes off government, as we take our eyes off politics and futures, and we place our eyes on the father, and we put our trust in the son who has already won the battle, then it doesn't matter what happens in the kingdoms of men. We are free. Do you understand? Freedom comes through Jesus Christ. And so what are we to do? We are to find out the answer to the question, whose son is this? And we're to put our full faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Our eyes are to be upon him. Do you understand? And then... And then we follow his example. And we begin to take down the giants that keep us from being stones in his hand that he can use to do what he wants to do in the world that we live in. And what will hinder you and I from doing that is when we do not fight against the giants that are in front of us right now. And we all have giants in front of us right now. There's the Goliath giant but there's also all of the other ones. There's the giant of insufficiency, like David had to overcome. There's the giant of those that would hold you back. There's the giant of a lack of education or qualification. And there's the giant of, you know, what your own personal Goliath is within your life and the thing that needs to fall down. But by faith and through him and with vision of what the cause is and what the call is, you, like David, can see the giant fall. Father, we just thank you tonight, Lord, for, for this amazing passage. And Lord, there's so much here. There's so much symbolism. There's so much truth. And as we stand here tonight, Lord, in this place and time, we're all aware of how weak we are. Lord, we're all aware of how quick we give in to the status quo and just fall into silence. We know how impressionable we are and how trusting we are in things that may or may not be for our good. We also know how sinful we are. And we know those things that we struggle with that keep us back, Lord, from being all that you've called us to be and all that you can make us to be. And so, Lord, as we stand here looking into the mirror of your word, the lens of your power and of your truth, we ask, Lord, that you would help make personal application to us. We're so aware of the strongholds that keep us on our side of the valley 
that keep us from going into the battle, that keep us from moving forward. And, and Father, we feel the frustration of watching months and years go by in our lives, and yet nothing seems to change. The stronghold doesn't seem to fall. And so, Lord, I pray tonight that by the power of your Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus, and with the help that you give, and according to the calling that you've spoken upon our lives and the anointing that you've released upon us, that you would give us strength, Lord, to stand against the armies of darkness that defy the people of the living God. So whether that be a giant that exists deep inside of us of something that we can't seem to overcome, or whether it be something in our environment, a person, a habit, a situation, give us the ability to know how to overcome those giants. David, it says that he bent over and he picked up five smooth stones. He conquered five giants. They all had to come down, one after the next, in order for the victory to be complete. And I don't know what giants you might be facing right now in your life, spiritual things, situational things. But right here up at the front of the church, right in front of me, there's a silver bucket, and, and it's full of smooth stones. There's a couple hundred of them in there. But maybe in your life, even right now, there are some giants that need to fall. And I just invite you, we're going to close in song right now, but you know what they are. You don't have to tell anybody what they are, but if you want to just come and say, God, I'm bending over in faith. I'm bending the knee in faith. And these giants are going down. I invite you to come get your stones as we close our service tonight. Let's all stand. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback, so if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.